Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I am not Kaiser Guo. This is David Moser, Academic Director at CET Chinese Studies at Capital Normal University, guest host for this special episode. I am not here, by the way, because Kaiser and Jeremy are away this week on break. In fact, they are both sitting right here in the studio in front of me. Hello. Uh, hello. <laughs> Hi, guys. It's true. This week, the boys have decided to try something new and turn the tables, so to speak, uh, turning the Seneca spotlight of truth on them, on the boys themselves. So the topic of the podcast today is going to be Kaiser and Jeremy, and maybe even the Seneca podcast itself. But in addition, sitting here to my left is Mary Kay Magstad, who has agreed to join us to add a feminine touch to this rowdy <laughs> or something or something. <laughs> She is the China correspondent for PRI International and uh, you know, the world, which I used to listen to all the time. She's her voice was used in my to. ear. Yes, I used to. I don't. I admit it. I don't have much time to listen to that <laughs> these days. But your voice used to be in my ear constantly. You know, and uh, I was I really that hurt. That was a good thing. I was really hurt when you didn't recognize me. In fact, the first oh. time we met, because I thought you must. <laughs> know and that's me. why you stopped listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was jilted. <laughs> uh, and just in case you're wondering if the. Seneca podcast has jumped the shark. I think that uh, actually the real reason is that it's a very hot summer and vacations are on the way. And Kaiser and Jeremy were just too damn lazy to get on the phone and actually make the phone calls for a real podcast. Yeah, I'm too so lazy to jump any sharks. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have a, a sort of experimental podcast today. And in keeping with this sort of self-referential mode... Um, I wanted to talk a little bit today, if there is a theme at all, we may not even get to it because it may be disrupted by you guys, but uh, a more serious theme to ask the question of whether the, the role of academic sinology is becoming increasingly irrelevant in this digital age of things like the, the Seneca podcast, in fact, and whether the, academ the academy is crumbling before our eyes in terms of Chinese studies, whether journalists like Mary Kay here are actually getting more important than, um, than academics. But let's jump in. I wanted to start out uh, uh, with Jeremy, because uh, given that this is a podcast about you two guys, Jeremy, have, I think, has said often on the podcast that we Americans overshare. I think that's the word that he uses, we All overshare. The time. Yeah. So, Jeremy, we, uh, I want to start out by asking you to overshare a little bit, <laughs> if, if, that's, if no. that's okay. <laughs> what is this? That's okay. Now, uh, some people probably know, some people don't know, you're actually not American, nor are you European. You're actually from South Africa. That is correct. Yeah, so, so where is South Africa exactly? Uh, it's, in a con it's on a continent called Africa, which uh -huh. is uh, to the west of China, and it's the southern tip of Africa. I want to get into... So I'm from Johannesburg, which uh -huh. is uh, basically the biggest city in South Africa, and it's a place where you dig gold out of the ground and make money. Um, that's kind of what you do in Johannesburg. And that's where your money comes from. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are a new father, relatively speaking, not totally yes. new, right? Uh, yes. How is that? How has that changed your, your life? It obviously oh, by the way, your, what, give us your daughter's name because it's wonderful. My name. daughter Viola is about uh, just uh, almost 14 months old. It's Viola Wooling Goldcorn. That's right. That's Starting right. out the life with a name like that. That is wonderful. Yes. She's, how old is she now? <laughs> she's just over a year old, basically. Uh -huh. Yeah. So yeah. she's, yeah, it changes your life tremendously having yeah, how a child. So? Give us an example. Um, nothing you cared about in the past seems to matter anymore. 
I suppose, is, is the biggie. You suddenly <laughs> care about something that you just would never have imagined you would care about. He used to <laughs> care about this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I still care about this You quit podcast. smoking, right? I quit smoking. Oh, that's that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. yeah, but rest assured. And the most difficult thing I've ever done in my entire life. life. <laughs> so the it's question easy. is, are you going to actually raise this cute little daughter in this fucking hell As a non-smoker. To, <laughs> <laughs> to quote you. <laughs> we'll... You know, we'll do what we can to make sure she has a healthy life. I mean, I do think that... Um, <laughs> respirators. On well, respirators, <laughs> air filters. I mean, you, you can make things a lot better. Um, I do think that there's been a little bit of an overreaction to the environment here. Uh-huh. Um, there are a lot of reasons one might not want to raise children in Beijing, but there are a lot of other places where raising children has other hazards and other problems. Like Egypt right now, for example. Like Egypt, Egypt, like America, where they put sugar in the bread and everybody gets fat. Like, you know, I mean, there, there, are, there are dangers that lurk in places that seem safe. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm from Johannesburg. You know, <laughs> hello. Like, yeah. what, what do you think? Beijing is going to freak me exactly. out? Beijing? Exactly. This place is for wussies. Yeah. <laughs> and we know a lot about your wife or something, something about her. Uh, you probably know that Kaiser and I, for a long time, if I may use a biblical world, have coveted You've coveted your, your my wife. wife. We covet your wife, yeah. yeah. Do. Because uh, she's ter- terrifically musically talented. I mean, there's nothing sexy. And you're pissed because I'm tone deaf. You yes, you're tone, tone deaf. deaf. You don't deserve her, really, basically. Both of us are accomplished musicians. I, yes, I, I don't deserve her. It's I true. mean, Kaiser, is it true? There's something incredibly sexy about a female musician who really, really can play amazingly well, right? There's something very... Uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And, and, and she I certainly does. I mean, she, she, she's, she's, she's really astonishing. She's really... Um, I, mean, I agree, too, even though I'm tone deaf. <laughs> even more beautiful when she's playing. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for sharing, Jeremy. <laughs> Is that really? enough over sharing? <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, before we get away from Jeremy, because yeah. I thought you were going to go in a different direction with well, that. Well, go so, ahead. Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. what brought you from South Africa to China? What was it that made you think, okay, it's going to be China, it's going to be Beijing? You know, usually when people ask me this question these days, I say, you know what, I don't remember. But I do actually remember. It's slightly complicated. When I was at university, I decided I wanted to ride a bicycle from Cape Town to London. But I didn't have enough money to pay for it. And then I thought I'd have to work to save up this money. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to work, then why not leave South Africa and go somewhere interesting to make the money? Because then that'll be more interesting than just working in South Africa. So then I thought where can I get a job as somebody who is a graduate with a, a, you know, a bachelor's degree in English literature? And I thought, oh, I'll you go can. to Japan and <laughs> teach English. <laughs> and then I started researching going to Japan and teaching English. This was pre-internet, so everything was more difficult. Um, and I kind of thought, you know, I didn't want to go to Japan because it was too open to the West. China suddenly seemed very interesting because it was a closed country. And I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know any Chinese people. There was no way to study Chinese at, uh, that I knew of in South Africa at the time. And it, it just seemed so completely exotic and different and completely um, uh, alien to anything I'd ever experienced. So I thought, well, why don't I just go to China and make the money? And then I kind of decided to go to China and forgot about cycling from Cape Town to London. Hmm. And that's how I ended up here. Honestly. Okay. It happens. That's, it does. This is, this is relevant to what I want to get to later on, which is your academic credentials. You came to China with no knowledge of China whatsoever and no knowledge of Chinese. And here, here we are now, the, the, the Jeremy Goldcorn of 
<laughs> worldwide <laughs> ren- <laughs> renowned. <laughs> All right, infamy, Kaiser. Infamy. I think we know about you. You came in '89 to f- to form the legendary band Spinal Tap. That's right. I mean, <laughs> no, 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 that's right. Sino Tap, Sino Tap Dynasty, right? And AKA Sino Tap. Yes, right. right. And you <laughs> left uh, because of events in '99. Tell us a little, just. Fill us in. I know people know a lot about you already, but basically your, your academic background I'm curious about. Exactly. Sure. Um, actually, when I, I came to China in 88, I'd, I'd fin- I graduated from the University of California, Berkeley, <coughs> uh, originally planning a double major in political science and history. Mm-hmm. Um, the history would have required me to stay on for an additional semester, but I was already just raring to get out and go to come to China. So although I did a lot more coursework in history than in political science, my degree was in, in poli-sci. Uh, and I guess I started off focusing on uh, on the, Soviet, the then Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Um, but after a trip to China in 86, um, having been to China in 81 and then in 86 again, I, I sort of saw the trajectory that it was unmistakable and knew that my fortunes could well be tied to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, no premonition about the collapse of the Soviet Union or anything, but all, all of that was largely <laughs> wasted. But, uh, so I spent the last two years, um, my upper division coursework focused mostly on, on China. Uh, and then uh, came to China, uh, started, was, was sorely distracted from anything remotely academic. The only <laughs> thing that I did, that, I mean, I, I, I was you know, witness to some pretty seminal events, of course, uh, but really didn't have a great interpretive framework for that. And part of what, what I mean, I had planned on going into back into uh, graduate school, but only after staying in China for two, three, four years, um, I, I kind of went tumbling out prematurely. I no longer had a place to stay in the Bay Area, so I was back in the parental nest in Tucson, Arizona. Arizona, fortunately, had the University of Arizona has a, a reputable East Asian Studies program, and I came under the wing of one Alan Whiting, mm-hmm. um, who was a political scientist, but he understood that I was really chiefly interested in intellectual history. And so we found a sort of topic area to wed the two um, that was looking at um, the, the sort of political role of the intelligentsia uh, in, 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 in modern China. So, um, so I, I actually was in grad school from, from 89 until the, the winter of 95. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I actually complete I had a master's degree to show for it but I actually completed all of my PhD coursework mm. and uh, took my quals to get my and, but not my prelims you went as far as quals and then abandoned it what what in the well, world prelims were the real next hurdle I mean and my, my professors all urged me to do them but um, I I was really kind of disgusted with academia by the end of it aha Great. Um, and no not specifically I mean it was the it was the time uh, I, I think I think a lot of the, it was sort of I, I'm not some sort of you know uh, conservative in in any real sense of the word, but uh, a lot of the uh, no <laughs> <laughs> okay all right all right Jeremy cha- challenges me on that, but I I I actually feel like um, this sort of safe bastion of reasonable scholarship of you know, East Asian studies was now sort of coming under pretty sustained assault by the forces of Postmodernism and poststructuralism mm-hmm. and whatever, you know, all that. But in the nineties, that was like—I mean, I yeah. was completely disillusioned with the humanities at the University of Cape Town because it was kind of like Derrida and Foucault right. ruled everything, and like reading canonical texts was like was, yeah, evil exactly. because yeah. you were yeah. a colonialist patriarch, and you know, screw you. I mean, yeah. it was the nineties was not a great time, I think, for 
people who are genuinely intellectually curious to be in, in the academy. Right. And especially maybe for you, Chinese studies, you'd already been to China. Your family's Chinese. So you My family's about, Chinese, yeah. yeah. I had a, uh, a leg up in the language, too. Yeah. R- right. Did, were you itching to get back and do music? Was that part of it? Or that was, I mean, that was the, the, uh, the, the, the final straw. I mean, I was definitely drifting already. I was, I was on my way out of academia. I just needed one nudge, and what, what that, came, it, that came in the form of, uh, well, in, in, in May of 95, our bass player had been killed in a motorcycle accident. His name was Zhang Ju. Uh, he was sort of, um, to use, you mentioned Spinal Tap before, so presumably you've seen it, you know, how Derek Smalls talks about his, his role between the fire of, yes. of David St. Hubbins <laughs> and the ice of, of Nigel Tufnell or, yeah. or the other way around. And so he's sort of like lukewarm water. So our lukewarm water was our bass player too, um, between the lead guitarist who, who replaced me, uh, Liu Yijun or Lao Wu, and the lead singer, uh, Ding Wu, the front man. Uh, the two of them really couldn't stand each other, and it was only Zhang Ju that was keeping the band together. And once he was gone, you know, Lao's days were numbered, and they asked me to come back. I, I actually made a really, you know, true good faith effort to keep them together. I didn't mm-hmm. think that I was. Well, I'm, I'm not a third. I'm not a tenth the guitar player that Lao is. So, I really thought he ought to stay on, but it couldn't. It were you also thinking uh, coming back doing? Uh, you know, rock and roll is like politics by other means, no, or something like that. Not at all. Nothing to do with that. No, no. You just came back for the rock star. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I think how, the whole. How do you how do you say plaster caster in Chinese? <laughs> that, that, Did you yeah, learn that? You don't need a lot of plaster if you're doing Chinese rock bands. So. Ooh. <laughs> no, it's just Kaiser. Ooh. I made okay, a dick anyway. joke. I'm There's sorry. There's a woman here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, so yeah, my ahead. my um uh, my take on the whole politics and rock. I mean, there there's. You know, one one person in every generation who actually combines the musicianship and, and the intellect to be able to do to, to bring these two things together. But most people, I mean, I I, I as soon listen to you know uh, upholstery, you know, refurbishers yeah. on, on matters of politics. Yeah, you ha- I I know you have quite diverse taste in music. We talked a lot about music. You you like a lot of things. Maybe now now it's not the time to get into. No, it, it's but not. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, very interesting. We've established uh, both of you, uh, Kaiser, with sli- slightly better academic credentials when you got here in terms of the China f- field. But still, uh, you you saw the writing on the wall that you abandoned academia in the same sort of sense. That's not to say that I think that it doesn't have a role in in in, in Chinese studies. I think it's still extremely okay, we'll valuable. Okay, we'll get yeah. to that in a minute. Mary Kay, tell us about your. Do you want to cross-examine yeah. this witness? Oh, well, I, <laughs> you can either cross-examine the witness, or you can tell us about your academic background. because oh. I'm curious about you too. Well, sure. So so undergrad uh, double major in journalism and history um, and then I have an MA in international relations and development studies which I got in England mm-hmm. uh, but no with no China focus on either no of China focus my master's thesis was on the Ethiopian famine Wow, wow. Uh-huh. and so th- when did you first uh, come to China and what made you decide to stay here well so I first went to Southeast Asia and mm-hmm. I was there for seven years um, and as I was reporting in Southeast Asia, I mean, China was just this shadow that hung over the region. I mean, that was really how people thought of China. When I first arrived in 88, <clears throat> it was a, a time when it was still fresh in people's memories that China had been financing communist insurgencies in most Southeast Asian countries, and they were still active in at least a couple, including Burma and Malaysia. Um, and then Deng Xiaoping did his southern tour, and I happened to do a series on the Chinese diaspora of Southeast Asia that year, 92. Hmm. And it just got me really interested in China. And um, I thought, you know, well, okay, so there are all these 
um, divergent views of what China is like. And you know, some of these views dated back to you know, the mid-1960s, and some were much more optimistic. And I was intrigued, and I wanted to go and see what China was like when you were actually living in it. So, mm-hmm. so I convinced NPR to let me open its China Bureau. It did not have one at the time, and, uh, and I went. So what for journalists, what's the actual experience? Like you come here, you've given the China beat, sort of, and how do you go about learning about China? Is it really like, uh, you, know, uh, you know, shoe leather, talking to people, and it comes from the grassroots, or do you actually do some, you know, meet with some experts or something? And you do all some all of the above. I mean, I think as a journalist covering a new country, you just stay open. You, do, you read a lot. You talk to everyone you can. You keep your eyes open. Um, you just absorb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've reported in a number of countries, uh, in Asia, in Africa, and elsewhere. And, and you know, you just learn how to um, ride a very steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this I want to get into the topic now that we've got the three of you here. We've got some, some interesting tidbits on your background. Uh, this podcast, I think, Kaiser and Jeremy, you'd have to say, has sort of leans toward the journalists, the bloggers, the movers and shakers, you, ha- you have had some uh, academicians on, some, some academic types. You had Victor Mayer, who's a, who was an eminent sinologist. Sure, and Jeremy Barmay. Jeremy Barmay, uh, who might be a little bit of a hybrid that I want to talk about in a minute. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wasserstrom. Jeff, that, that's, that's, these are the, the examples that I'm, that I'm going to give that, that of hybrids. But I think, I think it's fair to say that uh, in, terms of, in terms of the people here in Beijing who are the experts that you might call upon, it's mainly journalists, or it's mainly people who uh, have... Uh, have been here, they have some interesting experience, they're doing interesting things, and they have a blog. Well, to be fair, the academics don't live here. They're back at their universities teaching. I mean, they're in Indiana or they're in Yeah, but at uh, any Wisconsin. given time, you probably don't have the, the uh, connections I do. At any given time in <laughs> Beijing, there are, I don't know how many dozens of people doing their Fulbrights, doing their uh, Rhodes scholarships, doing you know their sabbatical. There's a lot of them here. And, but I don't think you'd want to have them on the show. <laughs> well, that, I think that is a thing. I mean, there are some academics who can talk, but generally 80% of journalists can talk, whereas 20% of academics can talk. I mean, I just made up those numbers, but a, a lot of academics don't present we're in, we're very in China, well. We're in China, it's 70-30, always 70-30. 70-30 in China. You know, the journalists usually are trained to think on their feet, I right. think. And they're broad. They cover a breadth of things. And, and, and when this show started, we, us- we usually you know, did three or four topics on a given show. Right, right. And so we needed people with that kind of breadth and versatility. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, we still call it a show about current affairs in China. The last few months, we've barely covered current affairs. But it's I mean, summer. that used to be the meat of it. So yeah. obviously, journalists are more suitable. But you, you two, and then to some extent, Mary Kay also, are coming at this period when I, th- I, th- I think, and see if you agree with me, I'm just going to throw this out, this transition was taking place when there was a sort of a, the, the, the academy, let's say, you know, there was, there was such a thing as sinology. And in order to get the ticket into China's studies, you had to go through the university system. You had to study with, a, you know, a teacher. You had to get your master's your PhD, which meant you got your PhD from someone else who they, they themselves had a PhD, which meant that you had, you know, cred, which mm-hmm. is you were able now to, under, to, be a, to be an expert on China. When 89 happened in Beijing, the Tiananmen Square incident, you know, if you looked on the American media, when they wanted to get perspective on the China scene, who did they call in? They called in the Kenneth Lieberthal's, the, Perry the Michael Oxenberg, right. the, the Orville Shell, the Perry Link, the gray-haired, tenured 
you know, Sinology, Sinologists who knew the th about China. I think if something that happens now, the, the media's not going to call on these people. They're going to call on the people, the bloggers. They're going to call on the journalists. They're going to call on the, and they're going to call on these hybrid people who, like Jeff Wasserstrom, Jeremy Varme, who, who work, who are academics, but also work within the blogosphere and within the internet. Uh, this, this seems to have happened within your, within our, our lifetimes lifetime. yeah, here Yeah, within our professional yeah, career. Uh, our, our friend, uh, Brendan O'Kane mm -hmm. coined as he's want he's want to do a, a, a nice term for it. He called he called us feral sinologists. <laughs> feral sinologists. Feral yeah. sinologists. Yes. I mean, we're we're sort of yeah these these people who who, yeah. who learned our China chops as it were in in the wild here in China. I mean, this is just it's a function of the fact that China didn't open you know its doors wide at all until very late in the 1970s. Most of these people. Um, I mean, many of these people rarely come to China. Many of the, the eminent sinologists, uh, and wh whereas people of say Brendan's generation, uh, they they learned it all on the ground here. I mean, they it, it's 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 a complete the, the ability to speak the living language is is one of the mm -hmm. things that really sets us apart from them. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I I count myself pretty well. I'm a hybrid, maybe. I mean, I, I'm I'm in a transition. I started off in a pretty traditional sinology. Uh, right. Ba you went through, you started out in the traditional path. Right. right. And then I went wild. I, I, if, I, if I may comment on this, I mean, I, I think, you know, the media, or at least good journalists, will still call on good academics when they want to comment. Mm -hmm. But they won't call on bullshitters who live in the Midwest or in some shitty town in, you know, the middle of nowhere in England or Australia. Uh, to comment on China because who needs that person? Right, exactly. You know, people who know what they're doing in academia are still in demand as commentators, and I don't think that demand has subsided. It's just that you don't require some professor to interpret China because you can find a blogger in Suzhou or you know a guy with a Twitter account who lives in Harbin if something happens in Harbin. Mm -hmm. there, there's a third angle too. Um, there's um, you know, people rotate also in and out of government. So you have people right. like uh, Ken Lieberthal, or you have right. people like Susan Shirk, uh, who have spent time in the State Department as well. And then they go back and, into academia. Right, right, and yeah. go back, in, in right. back and forth to academia. Yeah, well, it seems like oh, there's also these world of think tanks and all sorts That's of right. organizations that That's right. into it. Yeah. So, so in other words, uh, for Mary Kay, you've been in, you know, journalism. In a, in a, in a certain sense, you're in the same, you're a, a feral sinologist as well. Mm -hmm. You know, by technically speaking, even though you're strictly speaking a journalist, you know, I would say people like Evan Osnos, you know, people who have been through there are, are as, as solid as sinologists as Peter Hessler. Peter Hessler. He's yeah. not an academic, right? And he, no. Yeah, most yeah, exactly. people would agree that he's uh, uh, one of the most important interpreters of China of our time for yeah. the Western world. So, America, do you, do you interact with, with Chinese academics very much or are you mainly just on the ground you know with all, all of the above yeah. I mean Chinese academics non-Chinese academics people in the street um, you know I, I'll wherever you can get the information right? the perspective yeah it's not just information you want the mix right yeah um, and and I'm very grateful for you know people who can go deep into an issue when I'm I don't have that kind of time I don't have five years to spend on a specific issue when I'm doing a story on it I have a few weeks or a few days so I want to talk to someone who spent a lot of time thinking about it, and then I want to kind of test it on the ground and talk to people whose lives are affected by that issue to see if it really holds up. Mm -hmm. 
When I was at AAS, uh, and, and this is my... Yeah, I was going to ask my, you about that. I, AAS is the Association for Asian Studies, and Kaiser, you went there the, for the first time, I guess, last year. with First the, time uh, as a non-academic. As yeah. a non-academic with uh, at the behest of Jeff Wasserstrom, right? That's correct. There, right. And was on a panel on... Uh, what the was usual it? thing, yeah. the impact of the internet. Right? So what, was your, what was your impression as now someone who had gotten out what, of that? What I was actually specifically going to say was that um, there was one, one panel that, that spoke directly to this issue that Mary Kay was talking about. Uh, you know, we had uh, three very prominent China experts. Uh, uh, Ezra Vogel was one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, a very esteemed and and Susan Shirk uh, as well. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm for some reason I'm he's slipping my mind. But he's a, a very well known expert on Chinese law. Uh, Jerome Cohen? No, no, not no. Jerry Cohen. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. I, my apologies if, if you're if you're if you're mm-hmm. in there. Uh, he the, the three of them talked about how how uh, how important it is in their profession. To hone their skills at talking to media when they're called upon, you know, as uh-huh. experts, and you know uh, how they need to be able to distill very complex ideas into something that can, it, 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 no, so- no, 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 no. I mean, I don't. I wouldn't want to. No, I don't. I don't think that they were. They were being that cynical. No, about to it. be they able were, to talk to people exactly. outside of their little that's uh, right, egghead that's right. circle. That's exactly. Is, Sound yeah. bites. <laughs> okay, Jerome. Yeah. No, I, I think that it's it's an important skill. I think that yeah. uh, that there are guys out there. Uh, I think Jeremy Barmain and, and Jeff Wasserstrom um, yeah. are, are two of them. Are, are uh, they, they've gotten good at that, and it's important. I mean, mm-hmm. it, they are, as somebody has already used the word, interpreters of, of, of China for uh, popular Western audiences, and I think they have a very valuable perspective. It's often just too inaccessible. It's mm-hmm. too rarefied, right. too eggheady, uh, and it's a really good thing that I think uh, we're having this, this kind of discussion right now that we're, we're seeing them uh, more proactively readying themselves uh, for media exposure. Right. What I'm sort of wondering is, is academia, if, you're, if you want to be a sinologist or be in you know, the academy, are you going to have to morph or, or sort of into this kind of hybrid personality of part blogger, part media figure, part writer, part yes. academic? You, yes. you say yes, right? Yes, I think Does, so. I think, I think there's, there's one guy who stands out, I mean, as a, a young academic, uh, maybe he's not so young anymore, who also blogs, who also comes on our show frequently, who, uh, and it's uh, Jeremiah Jenny. Uh, he's uh-huh. he's he's a, a formidable historian. He's quite good. He's he's really a good synthesis. He's he's really an excellent teacher. He's good at telling the stories and great for perspective, which is what you want, Mary Kay. <laughs> That's Look, right. I, I mean, if my point of view on this, David, is that uh, what happened to the music business and the media business and the news business is coming for academia in the next decade, <laughs> and the entire academic system is going to be under assault from the internet. So if you want to be an academic, get your fucking act together because the internet is coming for your job. So every academic (laughs) should, in fact, be into new media because this is one of the – just like journalism, if you don't get new media, you don't have a future in journalism. If you don't get new media, you won't have a future in academia in 20 years' time. That would be my point of view. And I don't think this is a specifically China thing. I think this is a global information system thing. The old days are over. You know, there are some people on tenure. It's the last generation who are going to have it that good. Mm. It's the last generation. They're like the editors of the big newspapers now. There's no more future in that. But, but don't beat around the bush. Tell me r- what you really, really think about this. <laughs> All right. <laughs> share, Jeremy, share. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, it's amazing how conservative people are. Like, I, I found it amazing. Sorry to leave China a little bit, but the hand-wringing among some in the American media about Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. Oh, yeah. Why aren't people 
jumping for joy, like Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. He's Maybe there's a future. <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, he's got to talk. Up now. Robin well, Lee. And I, the... I was just uh, meeting this week actually with an old friend who used to work for the Washington Post, and he thought yeah. it was a pretty good thing. He did. Oh, that's he, good he said, to hear. He said, as long as you know, there's someone who you know might take journalism seriously, and we're not going to have to answer to shareholders who want a 20% return rather than a 10% return, even if it means cutting bureaus and cutting back on quality. Yeah. Uh, this guy wants to put money into good journalism. I love and good old-fashioned patronage. And, 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 and he might actually have a commercial solution to how you pay for it. I mean, of anybody, he's the guy who'll figure it out, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it might be worth giving him a chance, seeing what he does. Uh, I want to get back to China, though, mm-hmm. Well, before we run out, of t- run out of time. So, Jeremy, I think it's very good. You actually said... I was sort of being very cautious in the way I was laying this out, but you actually just came out and said what I, I was wanted to conclude, and so I feel like you know you finished the podcast for me. That's just oh, perfect. Sorry. That's just, okay. But but what I do want to what I do want to say is in this brave new world that you've laid out, for which which I totally agree. I mean, and, and hybrids like Jeff and Jeremy and Barme and everything are are great. This phenomenon that we're, we're witnessing, where the actual uh, expertise, the knowledge is spread out, not only above, uh, in, among acad- academics like, like Mary Kay was like, you go to everybody, but we're talking about multitude of bloggers. You're talking about, you know, people with just, you know, new people in the business world. The, there's people yeah. in the legal profession, the people legal profession in and, NGOs. There's right, people in, right. Ex- exactly. So they're all great resources, right? These are the people you talk to. Yeah, isn't it, it, right? I mean, it's about ideas, right? right. So you, you want to hear who has good ideas, interesting ideas, so, provocative ideas. And I don't, really mind if they're an I, academic I totally or a business agree. person or a blogger or someone on the street yeah, who's I been totally thinking agree. about something. I totally agree. I, totally I would agree. never have I don't think a it's blogger. The, the, reason, the, the thing I'm getting at is I don't think that this is uh, our problem in terms of the, the plethora of information out there. It's, academia, it's, it's academia's problem. That's right. So this is what I'm trying to get at. So the only thing that academia had going for it was this, th- that they were sort of the vetters that, that, you know, you, there could be all this the chatter out there. The gatekeepers. Just exactly. like the newspaper yes. industry used to think yes, of Yes, precisely. Yeah. The gatekeeper, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like the New York Times. Yeah. There are a few people I can think of who, who really do fit our, the sort of straw man of, of this ossified dinosaur you're, you're, you're talking about. But I think there are a lot of people in academia who are quite on the ball about this or who, who came out of academia. And they're not even the young whippersnappers either. There's There's... there's you know, people in, in their 70s. Uh, look, look at what Orville Shell has done. Yes, yeah, absolutely. There are some truly great academics. China I, I, the I, academics I, I, see it very clearly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they I just, just think it. the system is not going to last. I'm, sure. not, I'm not casting any Aspersion kind of aspersions or, yeah. on the achievements of... But, you know, to be very blunt about it, like you were just being, Jeremy, if you were going to advise someone, you say, I'm really interested in China. I think it's a fantastic, interesting place. What should I do to understand China? Well, look, look, look. I wouldn't, at this stage, I'm wondering, and I'm an academic. I'm in the university system, you know. Yes, I'm teaching you are. college kids. I, I'm, I'm not sure I would advise them, well, go get a degree, get your master's and you know, everything, and come back what? to China. I would. Know, you would? Yes, I think I, I still would. I think that, that there is something to the discipline, and there's something that, you know, having uh, a... a uh, syllabus and having you know the history actually taught to you in, in in minute detail, not just sort of picking it up from a few books and articles. There, there are a lot of of people working in journalism today. I'm not going to name any names who <laughs> I think you know really could stand history little, lessons, little history a little, lesson, yeah. yeah, a little more. I mean, uh, who on whom so many cultural reference are just completely mm-hmm. lost. Uh, when you, you just when you, when they do interviews, they end up having to dumb down what the interview subject says so much because they they don't get the reference you know to uh, 
to Journey to the West or to the Three Kingdoms or the Dream of the Red Chamber or to any of the whole, all four of the, the Chinese <laughs> novels. So, no, no. Uh, there, that you've read in, I've in read their entirety, them, I'm sure, right? <laughs> no, I've read two of them in their entirety. Um, my, um, no, I think it's important that, that, that they at least understand uh, I mean, have a little more context at, 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 their, at their fingertips. And I, I, I think I, this, is, this is true for anybody who pursues China. I think it's actually even more important than the language uh, as a reporter. Mm-hmm. I mean, the language, you can, all, you can, you can, you can have an interpreter, but you're, you're never going to have somebody who's uh, uh, going, to, going to be able to gloss every, uh, every allusion to some uh, speech somebody else, some, some, somebody gave. I would say this, that if you want to understand China, the more book learning you have, the better, because mm-hmm. Chinese culture is book learning. That's right. it. That's, That's the it. stuff. But, but it's, directly, it's books, yeah. it's letters, it's, it's not letters, it's characters, it's writing. And so it, if you don't know the writing, you don't know China. And a university, an academic background gives you the, the time and the discipline to do that. Yeah, so, I think but don't the, expect you'll have a job. Well, I think you, the problem is the know. sickness that you were sort of alluding to, which is uh, you go to some place like AAS, which should be the, the the center of you know all this knowledge that you're talking about, and instead you see these these ridiculous uh, postmodernist uh, you know papers so and things I like see too gender many of those. gender and phallic food symbols in Honglo Meng. You know, it's like what does this have to do with China? Right, I right. mean, wh- why why put your all your eggs in that academic basket? I mean, that's it's hard to get away from that if you're in the academic world in the U.S. But you know, yeah, I, I don't run into that kind of. I mean, I, I, I you was don't there. spend your time at AAS. No, but I, I went and I, yeah. I sort of you know was picky about the things that I went to see. But I, I, I learned quite a bit. I mean, I sat in on some really good sessions, heard some good papers. Well, I, I would like. I agree. I sort of agree. Also, I'm just wondering where you. It sounds like the, the, between you and Jeremy, there's a kind of middle ground. Where do you, where do you stand well, let, in this? Let me, let me ask Jeremy. When you say you don't think this model is sustainable. Then where do you see serious academic research going? Do you think that there won't be the, the money for it? or I don't really know, but I think that, uh, I think that funding is going to be a big problem. I think that, you know, I mean, the trendy term at the moment is MOOCs, you know, massive online, what are they called? Massive online courses. Mm-hmm. Oh, where, yes. You know, right. uh, courses are getting taught over university. And some of those are I great, mean, too. Actually. Some of them are fantastic. Yeah. I mean, why, you know, you can, <clears throat> you can watch Harvard lecturers right. for free you know, on the internet. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, getting degrees that cost them a hell of a lot of money. I mean, they're paying like 100, 200,000 US dollars for a master's in something that doesn't really fit them right. out for a career and doesn't really contribute anything useful to humanity. I mean, I think there, you know, there is clearly an economic um, problem with the current global academic system. Right. And, I don't see why it won't come under assault from the same forces that have, you know, turned the media business into such a bloody battlefield where, you know, so many former mm-hmm. titans and establishment figures have just disappeared. Yeah, I, I have no question that it's no 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 doubt at whatsoever that it will be disrupted by you know, uh, technology by yeah. distance learning, right. by all, all, all these things. But, but that doesn't mean I don't think it, uh, it's, it's, it's useful. I mean, I, I'm not right. saying that well, one should not. I think, right? I think it may I have mean, to reform its structure because it's increasingly not useful. And I think we're going to find a niche, you know, it's going to be a more of a niche for well, people that want to do certain things. But it, I, And it's a great discipline, but I, I just don't think you should think, okay, that's an easy career. You know, no, no, the no, idea no, of like yeah. being a tenured professor, I think that idea yeah. is going to, right. uh, you know, maybe that's sad and maybe that's wrong, but I think the reality is those things are going to be 
they're crumbling. So yeah. what crumbles first is my question. I mean, is it the area studies? Is it is it the, a specific discipline? Is it history? Uh, is it you know, for example, or political science or sociology or anthropology of China, uh, or is it the institution itself that sort of crumbles all at once? Well, I think both. I mean, the, the, well, the, some some it, entire it, fields are now becoming increasingly ir- irrelevant. Okay, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist asking the question. <laughs> I'm not sitting in my ordinary well, chair. Well, it's ob- obviously a big question for some for a podcast that was supposed to be light, L I T E. This has turned uh, you know heavy. And That's okay. Maybe like maybe it. we should uh, you know uh, drop this now and go on to some lighter things because well, we're running well, out of time. Let me just throw one more thing in okay. before we turn to lighter things, and that is just I think for academia and for journalism, there's this question of how do you do in-depth research to move knowledge forward, to right. come up with original right. thinking to help you know people think in new ways about uh, a new situation or an old situation, how, yeah. to, how to reflect on it differently. And the funding, I mean, there should be uh, an active search for funding because that's a very important uh, contribution. Yeah, and, yeah. And you know, certainly in journalism, we're, we're having a crisis with that. And it sounds like in academia, that might be coming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That old chestnut, you know, that, that, that journalism is the first draft of history. I have no problem with having, you know, better and better people writing that first draft, but somebody still got to edit and write the long version. Right. I mean, got and we still, and there is still need for the egghead who just studies one thing their whole life and gets really, really knowledgeable about right. that. Otherwise, who's going to write the Wikipedia article? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. I want to jump into some questions because I actually, before I did this podcast, I actually asked some friends if they had any questions for you. And so, um, Actually, uh, one, one, I got several people asking this question. This, uh, Adam in Washington, D.C. said, there's sometimes inconsistent bleeping for the podcast. <laughs> is, it policy, is it policy to bleep every third use of the F word? And the, same, the same no, thing. I, from I, the, Sean from the U.K. says, the biggest problem with this podcast is the bleeping out of obscenities. Sometimes they're bleeped and sometimes not. My suggestion is not to be so prudish and just let everyone just say anything they effing feel like saying. Well, fuckity, fuckity, <laughs> fuckity, fuck. Blame Steve Jobs is right, David's Steve excuse. Jobs. David is one of the proprietors of You're pop-up not, Chinese. But not me, by the not way. You, not David, David, Lang- David Lancashire. <laughs> uh, please, please, Jeremy. He's responsible for us being or not being on the iTunes store. And Steve Jobs, for all his being, you know, <laughs> Jesus and everything, seemed to be a bit prudish uh, about swear words and pornography. Oh, that, I see. Yeah, yeah. Steve Jobs has got some kind of weird. Okay, come on. Let's, let's, this is not an important question. No, no I'm just. Wait, these are, they don't need long answers here. All right. Uh, here's one from my student. So not our fault. That's no, not your fault. Okay. Here's one from a student of mine. I thought at first that Kaiser was Captain Kirk and Jeremy was Mr. Spock, but then I noticed that Jeremy is the emotional one, while Kaiser is the logical one. What's going on here? Yeah. Well, no, we, we have a... Sh- actually, I think that's not true. You're both emotional, actually. I, I can yeah. be emotional. I'm yeah. a pretty emotional yeah. fella. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's an emotional, rational divide. I think it's more of a sort of generally optimistic, generally pessimistic divide. Yeah. Uh, but, but also, I mean, emotion is not the, ob- the opposite of objectivity in a certain way. No, I mean, you get, emotion, you can get very emotional about just objective facts. Right. Mary Kay, you're misled by you, you must get passionate sometimes, uh, even though sure. you can't let it show, right? But you do a story because you're passionate about it, right? Sure. Yeah, okay. So it's a stupid question. No, it's not a stupid question, but it, it's fair. I mean, and I think the, the more interesting question is, you know, maybe sources of Jeremy's negativity, sources of my general optimism. And I, I think actually I've, I've, I think I understand why that, why that is. So are you good foil for each other then? Is that the idea? I think that's, that's the dynamic that's the that drives the show, right? <laughs> So if it's not Kirk and Spock, what is it? Is there a better uh, duo? Jesus and Bill's above. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
I'm Jesus. We won't ask. <laughs> a, a Jewish Jesus. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and Chinese Satan. <laughs> All right. Uh, again, a sort of a more serious question. All right, yeah. There's two, two questions here. Uh, well, here's a question. They're, they, they're linked, to put it that way. Again, Adam in Washington, D.C. It says, how many Chinese people regularly listen to the show? And what kinds of comments and observations do they make? Do the topics you guys discuss ever make it onto Weibo or other media and, and bring down the indiscriminate, irrational wrath of the Chinese citizenry? Well, I don't like Does the assumption that it's an indiscriminate and, and well, it's a thing. wrath. But uh, no, um, we don't get listened to a whole lot. We have been talked about a little bit. There are people who are sort of um, fans of the show in, in Chinese who, who write me emails once in a while. But I can't imagine it's more than you know uh, maybe a couple of thousand people in China who listen mm -hmm. to us. Um, because I, of the I, language I, barrier or just because what? Yeah, I mean, we, we speak very quickly and in, in really deeply vernacular English, so it's, it's, it's not do? easy. Yeah. No wonder. Yeah. And, and it, it's, not, it's not really intended for, for a Chinese listening audience, or if it were, we'd speak Chinese. As right? I say, yeah, it's a very expat-y. And a related question. It, it seems like whenever I, I won't say who said this, it seems like whenever I mention a topic I heard on Seneca to one of my Chinese friends, they never know what I'm talking about. It makes me think we expats care more about China than they do. Do we expats care more about China than Chinese do? What if, and I'm, then I thought of, you had the, a recent podcast, you had the Phonemica guys, uh -huh. the, the, what I call the Yang Lei Feng, people like Mike Myers doing the Hu Tong book and stuff like that, Dave Spindler doing the Great Wall, and there are a lot of examples goth. of that. That's nonsense. No, of course, expats don't care more about China than well, Chinese people. Yeah, do. but I mean, there's certain areas where, you know, they do, they have jumped in and to fill gaps, you know, in a, in a, in a Norman Bethune type Well, think way. about what Mike Meyer wrote about, right. you know, living in a hutong, right. right? Or living in a village. So this is something, it's like, you know, someone coming from outside the U.S. and writing about living in a suburb. You know, to us, it's like you... Nobody's going to write about that, right, except, right, unless they're except, you know, Richard Yates. Yeah. So, Mary Kate? I, I, no, I'm sorry. It's not just that. I, it's also that Westerners, and particularly you Americans, we're <laughs> trained, and you especially are trained, to talk a lot and to express yourselves. And this is considered something that's good, is to go into the world and then make something of it and then make a movie or a podcast or a blog or something. That's not something that is particularly encouraged in Chinese society. And obviously things are changing, and there are loads of Chinese people who do things about their own culture. But foreigners who interact with China often come here and they are very curious and they want to make a noise about it. Kaiser's shaking so, his head. <laughs> so, so, so sometimes they can seem, they punch above their weight in terms of numbers. No, I, I just can't believe that, that. I think this person just simply doesn't pay enough attention to the Chinese media because mm -hmm. everything you know that we talk about is being talked well, about. Well, of course. Ten, I mean, yeah. That's sure. true. Well, That's true. Sure, of course. I mean, but and, there and is a serious question. I mean, like Phonemica, why is it foreigners who did it? Yeah. Well, it's... Couple of American guys, because that's what you guys do. That's an outlier. <laughs> it's not an outlier. It's fairly representative. Okay, it's just okay. a particularly. I love what they're doing, but it's example. it's not that that you know. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that. I mean, uh, the, there's a lot of I guess I guess the a more charitable point would just be that there are some some foreigners who come here and they fall in love with China and they actually do some contributions. Just as with any culture, I mean, it, uh, yes. you know, lots great. of foreigners in the U.S. That, have right. done great things and even helped a uh, greater understanding of U.S. culture, you know, and stuff like that. I, maybe, it, maybe it's a serious point. Uh, let's see. What do I have here? <laughs> uh, this is from a guy named Brendan in, in Philadelphia. Uh-oh. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Jeremy, this is for you. He, he says, uh, make them take bets on the over-under, over whatever it was, for, for when, oh, 
for when and why various people in the expat scene are going to leave. My bets. One, Jeremy, 2015. And because, duh. Two, <laughs> Kaiser, 2015. Because Gwenny and Johnny get black lung. Oh, that's, that's his kids. That's Bill kid. Bishop, 2014. After half the Central Park development and all of, its, all of it, the CCTV building vanishes into a 500-foot sinkhole. And Alice Shinlio is Joel and Martin's. Martinson's partner, 2015, after she finds out that Marakami uh, Haruki and Banana Yoshimoto, and indeed all of her favorite writers, were writing in Japanese, not Chinese. It's an inside joke. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of inside jokes yeah. there. That's uh, from you know, Brendan, fuck you. Yeah. And, and because, okay, because fuck you. the question? <laughs> because fuck you, Brendan. But actually, this brings up a point. A lot of people were c- are concerned about leaving, expats leaving. When are you going to – what would cause yeah, – Okay, here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something. Yeah, yeah. Look, when did, they, when did they not leave? I mean, I think nobody, nobody wrote the story when expats are staying longer than they used to. Everyone used to stay two or three years and yeah. then get and then, and then bug That's off. That's true. I mean, and people keep true. coming back. Right. And there are more than before. So how can there be more leaving? I mean, it, there's, there's more but Kaiser, but Kaiser, The numbers swell. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Except there's some people that I personally, and maybe you can agree with me because we've talked about this before. And you know, uh, uh, let me just uh, okay. who gives a fuck about these crusty old fuckers who are leaving anyway? I mean, Thanks, so, except for, you know, they're, they're, no, there's, I was going to, uh, no, who, I mean, especially the ones who make kind of a stink about it. The, the Look, the truth is, I in my in my you know uh, in my life here in Beijing, I encounter all these twenty-somethings, three, four years out of school uh, from the states, from the UK, from, who are wonderful, who are here for the right reasons, yes, who have yes. this this terrific attitude about being here, who are genuinely proficient in the language, or if they're not, they're working damned hard to be, who are you know entrepreneurs, who are you know working in NGOs, who are engaging with. With China at you know a, a much more real level than many yeah. of these these whining cunts. I'm sorry. Oh. Who, uh, 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 <laughs> wow! Wow! Well, <laughs> I mean, these guys. Are, I mean, the I, they, time for you, Kaiser. <laughs> they they no, they they really inspire me. I, I gave agree. a talk at this place called Moisha House. It was filled with people who fit this description. I was so well. They were moved. Jewish. <laughs> right, they were Jewish. So, right, right, right. Of course. But uh, no, I I, I ex- totally agree with what you're saying. But some of these people are not uh, crusty old, whatever you call them. Right. Uh, for me, somebody like Peter Hessler going off to do reporting somewhere else, or Evan Osnos leaving. That's normal. Well, but to me, that's t- you say it's normal, but to me, it sounds like uh, Yo Yo Ma saying. Well, you know, I've had enough of the cello. I'm gonna, I'm gonna switch. <laughs> I'm gonna switch to the trumpet for a while because, uh, you know, I did my thing on the cello. I said, "What? You're Yo-Yo Ma? What are you talking about? You can't quit playing the cello." I mean, it's that's inconceivable to me. And, and like, if if you say this, Kaiser, but what if you suddenly say, you know, uh, "Welcome to the Seneca Podcast. Uh, this is my last podcast. I'm going back to California. Sunnier climes. The kids are gonna have a great schooling there and everything. We'll see you." Would it's that a, ever happen? It's not out of the question, but I mean, it's not going to be with my tail between my legs in defeat. It's, <laughs> it's not. It's not, and I'm not going to whine about it. I'm not. I mean, if I ever do, it'll, so would it'll, you leave? You know, uh, look, this is a place that that <laughs> that it really wears on you after a while. I mean, it, 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 I remember coming here uh, and 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 kicking back in what was you know a, a very different salitor back then, right? And thinking, you know what I like about this place. The slow pace of life. <laughs> <laughs>
I remember actually those those yeah. words escaping Even my lips. Right, in the mid nineties. <laughs> right, right. I really yeah. it felt that way. Everyone still biked really slowly. Yeah. Everyone walked really slowly. Yeah. It didn't matter. Everyone was still kind of sleep. Yeah. And also the, the, the guys in the summer still rolled up their pants right. and their t shirts. Exactly. And, 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 the and also of tea. And also I love and the show. lack of commercialism. Right. Remember that? Oh yeah. And the <laughs> lack of commercialism. It's almost as uh, you know, I was so aghast the first few times I saw Christmas, you know, being commercialized. I know. That was then, 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 then Valentine's. Okay, Day well, this this brings up a question I wanted to ask, uh, but didn't get around to it. Just very, qu- very quickly. We don't have to get into it a lot, but I have this theory that people who are long termers in China, um, they either you know are really running away from some serious problem, like a, a crime they committed in their home country, or 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 their uh, you know a failed marriage or something, a money deal or something. Or they have a deep, almost subconscious psychological uh, hatred of their or aversion to their own culture. Or your Edmund Backhouse. Right. But this assumes you have to be running from something instead of going to something. Right, I, I run to. And being, well, being pulled by something yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's true. That's very good. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. But it seems like people who are pulled will, you know, they're also pulled by lots of good things. But people who stay in China have got to be somewhat pathological. That's the point I'm making. I mean, uh, it's not the easiest <laughs> Wait, place so to live. So you're saying that it seems unusual to you if people leave, but for those who stay, they're pathological. It's it's yeah, it's it's very unusual, yes, to to stay that long. Yeah, like you for, for various just reasons. Just say the word touche and <laughs> you move on. Touche. Yeah. All right. Uh, are we going to do recommendations, or is that? Yeah, that let's do recommendations. I mean, I think we've all okay. got one. Okay, great. Let's go around. Want to start with maybe start with ladies Mary first, sure. Mary Kay. Um, so I've been thinking about innovation lately, and uh, a new book that's out is called Stumbling Giant, The Threats to China's Future. It's by Timothy Beardson, who founded Crosby Financial Holdings and has been in the China area and keeping an eye on China for about 35 years, 30, uh-huh. 35 years. Um, it, it's short on narrative and characters on the ground, but has a lot of interesting observations about where he feels the fault lines are in China and um, why he's not necessarily, no, he's definitely not, on the bullish side. Um, but, but he seems fairly realistic in terms of, you know, this is what they could do, this is what they're not doing, here are some of the challenges, here are some of the ways they could face those challenges. This is why I think it's going to be difficult for them to decide to do that. Hmm. Okay, great. Very good. The stumbling giant. The stumbling giant. Okay, very good. Jeremy. I'd just like to recommend a book by a friend of mine, Jeremy Bame, who we've talked about and who's been yes. on the mm-hmm. show, about Feng Zekai, the, uh, uh, the literary figure, the artist, cartoonist, and bon vivant, um, who I am reminded of recently because one of his uh, drawings has recently been abused by the the current propaganda campaign for the the China Dream that is being splashed all over billboards <laughs> all <Yeah>. over Beijing. <laughs> but uh, Life in Exile, I think, is the subtitle. Feng Zekai by Jeremy Bame. That book. Wow, how does he have time to do a, another He's book? That, that, that's a very old book. That's not oh, a it's new, old, it's well, not book. very old, but it's it's an old Still, book. Right. It's not a new one. Mr. Guo. Okay, so um, for for some time now, uh, you know, since Wang Qishan uh, suggested that we all read the, the Ancien Regime, um, you know, the uh, the Tocqueville book uh, about the the causes and consequences of, of, of the French Revolution, the causes really. Um, I, I I'm 
you know, we talked about how I'm away from academia now. Mm-hmm. And all I like to read is fiction. And one of my favorite <laughs> historical fiction writers uh, is Hilary Mantel. Uh-huh. I read a couple of her uh, her most recent books, which Wolf Hall and, and Bring Up the Bodies, which are about um, Cromwell and the court of Henry VIII, and they're just absolutely wonderful. So I went back and decided I'm going to read a, a, a well-written uh, historical fiction novel, uh, and she happens to have written one called uh, A Place of Greater Safety. I'm about halfway through it right now. And it's just uh, amazing. I mean, the prose is great. I mean, there are you know, historical figures in there like Danton and Robespierre who mm-hmm. were, were, were buddies. And, um, oh, my God, I, I'm, I'm just had – this is like my – had a few beers now during the course of this, so I'm forgetting. But uh, Camille, that's the answer to another yeah. question, which right, is right. how much alcohol was con- consumed during the, each podcast. A lot. Just, uh, anyway, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's just a great read. I, I highly recommend it to anyone. I mean, she's she's a very unique stylist. She has a a, a, a voice all her own. Uh, but this has <laughs> the addition of, of, of additional like, of being very historically faithful, mm-hmm. and you really get a, a sense for. Um, these these important times and of course as a china guy you just cannot help but keep m- making these these comparisons to you know the 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 f- ferment of the day mm-hmm. uh and why it is that Wang Shishan would have, have, have recommended this book it's a an issue that that i've been puzzling out myself for for some time reading whatever i can lay hold of on on that subject okay sounds great yeah sounds a place like you of need greater to set safety. aside a block of time to Dig into it though. Yeah, that's, that's good. it's a it's a very long book. Okay, very interesting. I I really don't have any uh, amazing uh, recommendations, but given the theme of the podcast, I would like to encourage people who haven't done it to just go back and read uh, Kaiser Guo's uh, book of collection of uh, essays from the Beijinger Ich bin ein Beijinger, which is available at fine. Uh, it's on Amazon. Fine <laughs> grocery stores around Beijing. <laughs> it's at April Gourmet. Go buy it. Is I'm it? sick is of it? getting. I'm sick of seeing it there. Yes, right. Yeah, get, but get no, rid of the it thing. is. I recommend it to people who some a lot of people know about it, but there are new listeners of the podcast that have never heard of it. So look it up. It's one. It's still some of the w- most wonderful essays about Beijing from a Beijing lover. Well, I thank mean, you. I still. I still sometimes recommend uh, those, those things. They're very funny, but they're also very, they're love letters to Beijing, really, is what yeah, they are. Yeah. And it's just letters. wonderfully written. And the other thing I'd like to recommend is that people go back, not to danway.com, which is really great, you know, obviously, but danway.org. Yeah. <laughs> Old and go back, because, because you have to go back for people, young people, and maybe even, I don't even know if the interns of this program have gone back and looked at that. That was a legendary Absolutely. blog. I mean, that was a daily uh, must for all of us. I mean, I woke up with Joel Martinson every morning, you know. <laughs> like, like Alice does now. And yeah, well, like Alice does now. And everyone's like, what was going to be on Denway that morning? And you, you have to go back and read those earliest. Uh, when, was the, when, was the, when did it start, Jeremy? 2003. 2003. 2003. Go back and just read some of the. They're really great. They're, and some of them still hold up. They're wonderful articles about all sorts of things. And, Actually, um, some of the David, best things we published were by you. Dave. Yeah, that's right. So, that's oh, right. thank you. Yeah. But aside from that, there's stuff by Jeremy Barmay. There's great stuff in there, yeah. Yeah. So I recommend that. Okay. Not a circle jerk recommendation. <laughs> yeah, this is that, was, that was pretty yeah, awful. Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah, never do that awful. again. Oh. I feel Jeremy's I feel tearing dirty. up. <laughs> I'm tearing up. I'm going to go take a shower. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty dirty. All right. Um, <laughs> thank you. This has been quite an, a strange experience. But, For me uh, especially, yeah. To be on the other side of the... the uh, to be in Kaiser's chair here. It's a throne, by the way. Is that yeah. another Jeremy's? 
It's a it's a throne <laughs> yeah. made You're of Jeremy's swords. Chair, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for your sins. <laughs> so Mary Kay, thank you for coming. So great to see you. Yeah, what? you added a lot. I was I didn't expect to have you here. It was great to have you here. And and uh, I should recommend uh, PRI's you know the world. The you should definitely. I go so back good. to doing. You know, I'm sorry that I deserted you for so long. I'll, I'll go back. And Mary Kay, you're going to be joining you? us next week, actually, uh, to to bid a fond farewell to, to Seneca. But, uh, <laughs> so she'll be back. Seneca, I'll still be listening. Yeah, yeah, of course. All right. And thank you, guys. Okay? This is how I do it. Did I do okay, Kai? You did was great, okay? man. Okay. I'm going right. to let you take over. All right, so the music's <laughs> going now. Da, 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 and we'll see you all next week for the Seneca Podcast. Bye for now. Take care.